Episode 2 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. Hello and welcome to Episode 2 of ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some familiarity with the basics of blockchain technology. To prepare for this, we read the white papers and we investigate the background of the team. Sometimes we spend some time communicating directly with the key players in question, and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not suggest. Now, as I mentioned in our first episode, we're launching this week a sister podcast called Blockchain 41. And although that podcast will cover the fundamentals of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and blockchain from the absolute beginning, we nevertheless feel that it's important before we get started with today's upcoming ICO to cover in five minutes or less some basics. If you already know all this stuff, feel free to fast forward five minutes. In October of 2008, just a month after the failure of Lehman Brothers, and in the first year of the worldwide financial meltdown, a white paper was published on a cryptography mailing list, which was written by a pseudonymous author by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto. This paper outlined in just eight pages the theoretical and technical mechanism by which a peer-to-peer electronic cash system could allow payments to be sent between two parties without the involvement of an authoritative financial institution, or in fact, any central trusted authority whatsoever. This in and of itself was not a new idea, but the basic concept of decentralized digital currency as opposed to a physical coin or a dollar bill was for years plagued by a few issues. And the most difficult one of these proved to be the notorious double spend problem. Because again, by definition, a decentralized system such as this lacks a financial authority to keep a ledger. How does anyone know for sure who spent what? How are the balances of accounts actually kept accurate? In fact, what is to prevent me from paying two people at the same time the same amount of digital money if there's no central authority to keep a ledger? Remember now, there's no bank to provide this service. Well, Satoshi's paper claimed to have solved that problem by making every transaction public to the entire network in an ongoing chain of hashed transactions, cut up in blocks of transactions every 10 minutes. And importantly, each participant in the system or node would gain the right to participate through a proof-of-work computational puzzle where those 10-minute blocks of transactions were solved, as it were. And to make sure that each node agreed on the veracity and accuracy of each block of these transactions, each new block on the chain would reference the hash of the previous block and then would be accepted through consensus. And what this does is to maintain an ever-growing, immutable, accurate, sequenced chain of blocks known as the blockchain. Now, a paper is one thing, but less than four months later, the author released open source code that actually worked with a functional blockchain database, along with the creation of a currency named Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. 
And through software, nodes could participate in the network, solve puzzles, and earn through their effort bitcoins. Anybody could participate, and enough did, even though at the time bitcoin had no intrinsic value. This was the beginning of bitcoin and the blockchain. Now let's fast forward to late 2013, and a young bitcoin programmer named Vitalik Buterin issued a white paper that introduced a decentralized computing platform named Ethereum which would run on a blockchain, like Bitcoin, with a token for value, just like Bitcoin, but named Ether. But unlike Bitcoin, Ethereum would contain a framework to allow the creation of specific applications to provide transactional business logic run on the blockchain, powered by this Ether token. These were to be called smart contracts, and they held the promise of a very wide range of applications. With such contracts, you could actually create an entire decentralized autonomous organization, or DAO, which could then use smart contracts to encode the rules and bylaws of the entire organization. Now, this pretty much exploded the concept that Bitcoin had introduced, because now the blockchain could be used for much more than just transactions. But... Perhaps more importantly, in leading us to the present situation, and in fact this podcast, ICO41, the Ethereum organization developed a series of standards, one in particular named ERC20, which allowed the ability for a programmer using the Ethereum platform to create a digital token, not Ether, but running on the Ethereum platform. Once financial exchanges allowed the conversion of these new tokens, whatever they were, to what is known as fiat currency, such as the euro or the US dollar, the concept of the initial coin offering was born. And the vast majority of recent ICOs have used ERC-20 tokens on the Ethereum platform. Now that's my five-minute treatment that leads us to the present moment. Again, for a thorough, fundamental, and ongoing treatment of underlying topics like this, please subscribe to our sister podcast, Blockchain 41. Okay, listeners, this week's upcoming initial coin offering is... Ambrosius. Now, it would be an understatement to call this project ambitious, as it seeks to completely rewrite the method by which the planet manufactures and ships its food and drugs, as well as providing unheard-of transparency to the consumer about the origin quality, and current state of the product on the grocery store shelf. To give you an idea of the scope of this project, the company's vision paper is titled Food Supply Chain 2.0. As always, we'll be using our standard 14-point analysis methodology for this podcast. Those points consist of the concept, the company, the team, the white paper, the roadmap, the token itself, the network, and the technology behind it, the pre-sale, if there was one, any offering details, a little bit about SEC compliance, business viability, community response and anticipation, possible issues, and a little bit of devil's advocacy, and finally, a takeaway. Let's start with the concept. If you're part of the growing trend of what I'll call food awareness, you have probably given a thought or two about where your food comes from, how it's treated on the way it gets to the store you buy it from, what condition it is when you take it home to your family to feed them. In the United States, food regulations and labeling laws began in earnest in the 19th century. And in 1990, an act of Congress, 
provided the FDA with specific authority to require nutrition labeling. It wasn't until the formation of the European Union that Europe centralized and enforced rigid standards for food labeling, but the practice had occurred for decades before in individual countries. However, despite all of these laws and practices and standards across the globe, there remain some problems, to say the least. First, fraud is endemic. Nutrition labels have been proven again and again to be less than trustworthy. And secondly, metrics are collected in large batches. So even when there is no outright fraud, what you're reading on the label of the item you're holding in your hand is often an approximation of truth. Finally, whatever measurements there are are taken mainly at the source, not at the destination, and certainly not along the way. And a lot can happen along the way. The solution, according to Ambrosius, is, is to fuse hard technology in the form of sophisticated sensors with this new concept of Internet of Things running on a decentralized, trustless, immutable blockchain database of information. Each monitored food or drug item contains with it a token that is bonded to the product and facilitates an ever-growing chain of information about the condition of that food or drug as it travels the entire length of the supply chain, from manufacturer through transit, and finally to the consumer. And the consumer at the end of the chain can instantly see all of the information through the use of a mobile app that scans a QR code. As you might imagine, this will provide tremendous transparency for the consumer and ensure food quality without the requirement of a centralized authority, such as the FDA or Europe's EMA. Let's talk about the company and the team. The company itself has some impressive history with respect to its associations and responses from the investment community. For instance, it was accepted as a member of the United Nations Advisory Committee of Sustainable Food, and formal endorsements were received by the president of the Swiss Quality Control Association. And this is, in fact, a Swiss company. It's located in Zug, Switzerland, which is interesting in and of itself since Zug has been dubbed Crypto Valley due to its extreme support of the concept of Bitcoin and digital currency and an unusual concentration of crypto entrepreneurs. Just to give you an idea, there are currently 10 Bitcoin ATMs in this town of about 30,000 people. The company itself was founded in 2016 and has raised money in the traditional way by attending funding events such as the Monaco Growth Forum. The CEO worked for the United Nations, the World Resources Forum, and Bloomberg. He has spoken at Davos, where he discussed financing models for sustainable consumption and production. In fact, in his presentation, he pointed out some major constraints that small food producers face due to lack of access to finance. As you'll see when we discuss the white paper, this is still clearly on his mind. The co-founder and CTO of Ambrosius is Dr. Stefan Meyer, who has worked in the food and biotech industry for 20 years. The lead engineer, a professor named Jean-Paul Sandoz, has an impressive list of patents that are filed with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, some of which are clearly baked into the concept around Ambrosius's ideas, such as self-sustaining control systems, piezoelectric sensors. Even the developers have some interesting credentials, which is sometimes unusual in an ICO. For instance, one of the lead developers published a blog in 2015 that shared a design of how to send time-locked and encrypted messages, which could only be read in the future, using something he called the time chain. Now, this is just one of three blockchain developers on the project. The team 
even has a communications manager who looks to be about 25 years old but has a PhD and taught investment law at a Greek university. I'm fascinated by the diversity of some of these ICO teams, but Ambrosius really does stand out in that regard. If there's an all-star on the team in terms of blockchain technology, it's Dr. Gavin Wood, who is no less than the co-founder of the Ethereum platform. This is a little bit like having Beyonce as a backup singer for your latest YouTube video. Let's talk about the white paper. In this case, there's actually more than just a white paper. There's a repository of detailed documents, including, of course, the white paper, but also papers on food sensors and tracing, non-invasive analytics, a handful of detailed use case scenarios such as olive oil and Swiss cheese, pharmaceuticals, plus a separate vision paper where the authors expand upon and expound beyond the white paper. The amount of information exceeds the normal output leading up to a typical ICO. But then again, considering the team's experience with publishing scientific papers, it's not too surprising. The key points of the white paper include a widespread use of innovative and highly advanced physical sensors of several types, such as DNA labeling of proteins, smart gels which can be smeared onto tissue, such as a salmon, digital tracers that sense pressure and other ambient factors as food travels from the point of origin to its destination. Along the way, in a sort of version of Internet of Things, data about the product environment is reported from these sensors into an immutable blockchain to provide information that cannot be manipulated, thus ensuring the integrity of the food and of the data. It's not just sensors either. It's cameras and stationary places along with the packaging, other types of permanent fixed sensing devices to provide what amounts to a 360-degree view of what is happening with this food item before it gets to your kitchen. Now, one of the things I found interesting in the white paper and vision papers is the concept of a farmer's fund. And here we can see the CEO's concerns raised at Davos being met with the Ambrosius network, wherein up to 2% of the value of the entire network would be set aside and locked into a smart contract to supply collateral for loans to small farmers, maybe operating in developing countries, with little access to financing to grow their operations. And the fund would be replenished by voting by the community using the Ambrosius platform and, of course, holding the token, which is called Amber. Another interesting concept that I liked was the digital matchmaking between members nearby to create these sort of digital collectives where farmers who are producing similar or complementary products can offer their products in bulk and thereby find maybe larger customers and to increase their bargaining power in general. This is also extended to the location and bidding of logistics companies to ship the product itself. And finally, a big part of this idea is a reputation system for producers, shippers, and really all members of the supply chain. The AMBER token would be used to reward and track reputations based on actual events as smart contracts are completed and the data recorded on this immutable blockchain. As well, the consumer might be rewarded in AMBER for purchasing the product. Let's talk about the roadmap. One of the things that should be obvious by now is that this is not what you'd call a short-term project. The plan is for a proof of concept to be released in September or October of this year, 2017, followed by a food and commodity marketplace by December of 2017. In 2018, we see beta of the marketplace and some of the sensors, but it's not really until 2019 that the first generation of sensors will be launched and not until 2020 
when the first fully automated, decentralized, autonomous organization with sensors and artificial intelligence is actually released. It's also important to note that there's not a planned exchange for cryptocurrency trading planned until the winter of 2019. Now, of course, there's nothing to stop outside exchanges from listing the token, and this will almost certainly happen. It's just that the development of an exchange by the Ambrosius team will not likely happen immediately. This is actually in contrast to many ICOs which launch an exchange before the ICO itself. But in a way, this speaks to the sincerity of the leaders of this project. If you think about it, it's a way to show the world that it's not just about the money, it's about the project. The exchange and the financial aspects of it can come later. Let's talk about the token. The token is named Amber. It has a symbol of AMB. It's an ERC-20 compliant token, which means it can be used on the Ethereum platform and can be used with any decentralized application running on that platform. For more information about ERC-20 tokens in general, please listen to our Blockchain 41 podcast. What's interesting about this token is that it's bonded to a product until such time as there is a defined expiration date or perhaps a termination event programmed into the smart contract. So you could imagine the purchase of the product might be such an event or any event along the supply chain. End consumers who purchase the product can then claim the token bonded to that product. And that token can be reused and then rebonded to another product at another time. The token can also be used to reward members of the supply chain and to record reputation status. And, of course, it can also be used to transfer value for services during the supply chain lifecycle if and when the token receives an actual value converted to what we call fiat currency, such as U.S. dollars or euros. The technology is multifaceted in the sense that it features a hardware layer in the form of sensors, as we talked about, and other devices, and then a couple of software layers to support interactions. Now, naturally, the Ethereum blockchain will be used, but the Ambrosius protocol also calls for a custom blockchain, functioning as a sort of sidechain and communicating securely with the Ethereum blockchain, as well as the use of what is known as IPFS, the so-called interplanetary file system. Now, this is a relatively new protocol, which allows for a distributed file system. Now, why do you think this would be necessary? Well, if you think about it, the sheer number of reported transactions coming from all of those sensors, that's a lot of data. There's no way that you could store all of that or write it immediately to an ever-growing blockchain without crushing performance, hence the use of the IPFS. Another way to mitigate potential performance issues is that the Ambrosius protocol calls for writing changes to the smart contract collecting the monitoring data every 100 readings instead of every reading. I have a feeling this will probably be tweaked as the system evolves, but it's a good step in the right direction. In terms of the access to the Ambrosius protocol, there will actually be made available a topmost layer of JavaScript that abstracts the methods and features of the platform just makes it more accessible. The reason for this, if you think about it, is that there are many, many, many more JavaScript developers than the core development components of Ethereum, which include things like Solidity and Go, still somewhat obscure. If you open up the entire stack to JavaScript as an entry point, it means that 
Ambrosius is encouraging the development of a very wide range of applications for a lot of different kinds of industries. In a sense, from a technology perspective, they're building a platform accessible by others to write these decentralized applications, similar to Ethereum. Let's talk about the presale. As we mentioned, Ambrosius has been seeking and receiving financial backing from organizations before the upcoming token sale. Now, according to news sources and a couple of chats that I saw from the team themselves on the Discord channel, Ambrosius has reached more than 30 million Swiss francs ahead of the ICO, and in some cases I saw the number 40. Some of that financing has come from part of the Swiss government itself, specifically the government of the Swiss canton of Var, a canton being the equivalent of a state in the U.S. or a province in Canada. At the time of this recording, the ICO sale itself has been postponed a couple of days due to some security concerns. In fact, they recently abandoned their Slack channel in favor of Discord, and according to a statement on their blog, they're the victim of a series of targeted hacks and phishing scams. This is not that uncommon in ICOs, but as they mentioned in their blog, this sale has one of the largest caps ever and one of the largest pre-sales to date as well. So I believe them when they say they are most likely a serious target. Let's talk about the details of the offering. The original date was September 13, 2017. The new date is now September 15, 2017. The sale will be conducted using rigorous KYC, Know Your Customer Protocols, which if you've ever signed up for a cryptocurrency exchange account, it'll probably involve holding your passport up to a camera and providing all kinds of information. In fact, on the Discord thread, there was a one Russian gentleman who said that during the pre-sale, the KYC procedure demanded a notarized version of his latest gas bill. This just gives you an idea. So, if you're going to participate in this, get your documents ready. KY information for specifically this ICO is coming soon, according to the blog and the Discord channel. The hard cap for this one is 100 million Swiss francs. That's about 105 USD million. Pretty big number. The sale is closed to U.S. investors. And along with the KYC standards, it may be difficult for U.S. investors to participate without going to some lengths. The company is pretty serious about this. Uh, in fact, there was a tweet where they refunded over a half a million U.S. dollars to a pre-sale investor when they discovered that that person had purchased shares on behalf of a U.S. citizen. As a matter of fact, I had a discussion on their Discord channel with a member of their team, and he explained that even though they don't believe their token would be considered a security by the SEC, and even though they are going lengths to ensure that, it's the ongoing lack of clarity in U.S. regulations that leads them to believe that they should just take no chances whatsoever in this regard. As most of the listeners of this podcast know, there is little, in fact, to stop U.S. citizens from trading the token on the secondary exchange market once it is released and once the ICO is completed. But as for the sale itself, know your customer will be in place. Here's the token allocation. 40% to pre-sale and token sale, 16.9% to partners and early investors, 16.8% to the team and advisors, 25% to a partner development pool, 1.3% goes to security audit and a bounty program, which is active now. The breakdown of the money they actually receive when it's converted to whatever fiat currency, 
35% R&D of the protocol and ecosystem, 25% R&D to the sensors, 25% to outreach partnerships and integrations with other systems, 10% to a food quality lab, 5% to legal and administrative. The initial exchange rate for the ICO will be 1 Ether to 1,000 AMB, otherwise known as AMBER. In the token sale, there does not appear to be a sliding scale bonus as there was in the pre-sale. There's a bounty and more information can be found on the end Bitcoin talk for the thread about the bounty if you're interested. There are no current exchanges that have been identified which will list the AMB token. And the communication about exchanges has been, let's say, coy in the sense that they need to walk the fine line of heavily discouraging speculation in the token while also attracting investors. Statements made on the forum by team members might lead one to believe that exchanges are very likely in the future of the token, but there are no specifics until after the sale is complete. Our personal opinion is that there's a very high likelihood that exchanges will pick up this token. Let's talk briefly about SEC compliance. As with any utility token such as this, and with the company's very hard line on discouraging speculation, the Howey test applied shows very little likelihood that the SEC would rule this as a security. And so therefore, in our humble opinion, it's not necessary for the company to register the sale as a security offering, at least in the eyes of what we imagine the SEC believes. But as we've said in the past, this does not stop the ICO from being blocked to U.S. investors, since that really is the prerogative of those holding the sale. Now, all I can say about this, in general, is that if you as a U.S. citizen are at all disappointed in this, please use your democratic process to speak out and ask the SEC and your congressperson to issue some clarity on this area. And while you're at it, don't hesitate to educate those representatives and agencies as well. Business viability. Let's talk about business viability because we really need to break this up into several phases, in my opinion, because the vision is so grand, so far-reaching, and so disruptive of the current supply chain practices that it would be a mistake to judge the viability of the entire business model based on the end game vision. It's hard to imagine, if you think about it, the widespread adoption of sensors in the short term. I mean, we are potentially talking about a gel tape on every fish or pumpkin. On the other hand, it should be understood that this is not just one idea, it's actually many contained in that white paper and vision statements and it contains plenty of business opportunities at several levels. There was, in fact, a five-page paper named Business Opportunities, and one of the most believable business models would be an enhancement of the growing niche of organic marketplaces that pay close attention to quality. I, for one, can easily imagine the demographic of Trader Joe's or Whole Foods customers embracing this concept and rewarding the producers who are members of this platform, particularly if those Whole Foods shoppers can scan a QR code of an item and obtain lots of data around quality before purchasing. In a discussion that I had on Discord with the CEO Ambrosius, DNA testing of salmon is a good use case to solve once and for all, for instance, the doubt between farm-raised and so-called wild salmon as an example. 
Another business model that is attractive would be the pharmaceutical industry, especially if governments embrace a higher set of standards, which could include the technology presented by Ambrosius. Ultimately, as the CEO has mentioned in the Discord channel a couple of times, the first viable business models will be in the higher-end markets, things like olive oil and other premium foodstuffs, and of course, the pharmaceutical industry. Let's talk about the reaction from the community. From what I've seen on Bitcoin Talk and Reddit and other forums, it's been mostly positive. There were some criticisms voiced with respect to their communication. Their Slack channel was a disaster with some hacks and major issues that had to be abandoned altogether. But when they switched over to Discord, the situation improved markedly. In terms of communication, this is one instance where the CEO himself is very active on the thread, answering questions all hours of the night and weekend, and engaging with the community quite energetically. If you are so inclined, you can join the Discord channel and read in-depth discussions from the CEO and some of the other team members with a wide range of people in the crypto community and outside of it. From what I've read, when you filter out all the trolls and focus on the in-depth conversations, you'll find thoughtful replies and the team seems to hold their own pretty well against sincere criticism. Let's talk about Gotcha's potential little devil's advocacy here. First, by now you'll realize this is a very long-term play in terms of adoption. The level of monitoring the project is proposing here is so far beyond anything that exists currently. It's not really possible to believe that the efficiencies realized by the use of this platform would entirely offset what would have to be some pretty high cost of application of monitoring devices at the level suggested, even with some of the premium foodstuffs. Secondly, it turns out that there is, in fact, a little bit of competition at a certain level. There is a company named Modem doing a very similar thing using the blockchain, but it's a much smaller scale. They're actually focused on the pharmaceutical industry and they're measuring mainly temperature range during shipment. They do, however, have some actual working devices and they've monitored over a thousand shipments and received over a half a million data points during those shipments. The white paper though is pretty slim with little about the technical details of the network and with what appears to be a narrow use case. I didn't see much about addressing the scalability issues when you've got 500 data points per shipment. So when you consider these factors, it's quite possible that the so-called competition is not so much competition after all. Another slight concern is the fact that the platform uses what is known as proof of stake, which means that the only way to join the network after the sale would be to purchase AMB, or perhaps to write a distributed application on the platform that somehow collects the AMB token. Now, if the price of the AMB token rises due to speculation, which is probably going to be inevitable, then this would slowly raise the cost to newcomers of the platform. And what I'm really thinking about now are those small farmers that the CEO mentioned at Davos and their access to financing. But more generally, it's a higher cost to participate. And finally, we're seeing the use of more or less privatized side change in these ICOs for technical reasons, and Ambrosius is no exception. Now, when this occurs, the question could be asked whether the private management of a sidechain like that undermines the egalitarian nature of blockchain technology, like Ethereum, for instance. 
Now, it so happens that I posed these two questions on the Discord forum, specifically to a couple of the developers in Ambrosius, and I did receive replies to the first question regarding the scalability or the increase in the token value possibly making it a little bit more difficult for certain actors to join the network. Both Matthew and Mark explained that dynamic pricing models are absolutely possible, and in fact they do exist in certain fee exchanges now. With respect to the other question, which was a little more technical regarding the use of side chains, Matthew actually agreed with me, and he said ideally, of course, you would use the main chain, but he also pointed out that you can save fees by using a side chain. And so both, I think, useful answers to the original questions, but also just showing that there is an open dialogue on the Discord forum. Generally, the takeaway, all in all, we believe that the Ambrosius token offering will probably be a large success, especially with the team, their connections, the idea, the pre-sale numbers, and the anticipation. We believe the execution of the project will actually take years, as the team believes as well. We do not believe personally that this ICO is an ideal short-term investment. In fact, our opinion is that short-term investors would do best to heed the advice from the Ambrosius team themselves and not treat this as a speculative investment. Uh, we, of course, will be keeping our eye out on this outstanding project as the months and years roll by. We'll check in from time to time to see how they're doing. That concludes our take on Ambrosius, and we'll move to our weekly check-in in a moment. Our check-in ICO this week is Voice. That's V-O-I-S-E, if you want to look them up. And we've selected this ICO because we don't want to get into the habit of focusing only on the guerrilla blockbusters of ICOs in every podcast. There are plenty of projects that are very interesting and admirable in their mission, no matter how small, and we happen to believe that voice is one of those. Voice aims to solve the problem of just how tough it is to make a living as a musician who's not a superstar. In fact, except for a very select few, the vast majority of musicians who attempt to take advantage of the online music marketplaces often find themselves paying between 15 to 40% of the revenue generated by the content that they create and deliver. Voice running on a blockchain aims to deliver very close to 100% of the revenue generated back to the musician. Of course, this is possible through a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer network that contains what we now know well to be a smart contract to ensure that both sides of the transaction are treated fairly, programmatically, and without the need for a middleman or a central authority, which often captures hefty fees. Having said that, one of the significant differences of this platform is that the developers have recognized that in the current climate, the cryptocurrency market itself is too small to support a robust music marketplace. And so what is known as fiat currency, such as US dollars or euros, will also be accepted on this platform for a small fee. As the project sponsors have pointed out, this feature was actually absent in previous attempts to bring music to the blockchain 
on some projects that failed in the past. They just don't want to make that mistake again. So they're starting off allowing some fiat transactions. The basic business model for voice is, again, mainly based on the incentive for close to zero commissions on the sales of original content, but there are a couple of other benefits as well. For instance, some music services require the consumer to subscribe and pay a monthly fee to obtain their music. There's no such subscription model for voice. And some platforms allow streaming or downloading. Voice offers both of them. An interesting component of the fact that it's on a blockchain is the nature of the blockchain itself, which, as we know, is actually public. So it's wide open information. In fact, it's possible to see precisely how popular an artist actually is, since every transaction is viewable by what's known as the blockchain explorer. So it's possible to see all of the transactions and know which artists are in fact most popular. This being a blockchain or an Ethereum project, uh, the software is inherently open source. Just about no other music streaming or music downloading sites are open source platforms. One of the more interesting aspects of this platform, uh, at least expressed in the white paper, was the global DAO radio. We know what a DAO is. It's a decentralized autonomous organization where holders can vote on a playlist and a sort of proof-of-stake mechanism. How many tokens they hold allows them a higher vote. So listeners of DAO radio are allowed to listen to the song and the playlist once, but they can't download it. In this way, the DAO radio serves as a marketing channel for musicians, but run by the stakeholders in the system using voting. Let's talk about the details. The crowd sale started on May 6, 2017 and ran for one month till the 6th of June. The name of the token is VSM. That's uh, Victor Sierra Mike, if you want to look it up. At the time of the offering, the amount raised was about $650,000 USD and initially traded when it was picked up by the exchange finally at uh, between $0.40 cents and a dollar. It now trades at just over $4 and has a market capitalization of about $3.5 million. There is a circulating supply of 825,574 tokens which were issued during the sale. This token, we've seen some extreme volatility, spiking as high as $20 uh, briefly, and with a market cap, albeit temporarily, of some 15, 16 million US dollars. In terms of the roadmap and announcements, they're looking at Q4 to release the public code and the platform. But on August 28th, they and a musician named Jinko, a well-known musician from Santa Cruz, California, announced that they'd be collaborating together to bring his music onto the voice platform. So we see here, although they don't have a platform yet, they are lining up, uh, beginning to line up some artists who will work with them, and that's, generally speaking, a good sign. Uh, they've migrated to a new website and they're accepting registrations for their newsletter. Uh, they've announced that uh, they're pretty much at the beginning of the first major stage of the roadmap and uh, they do seem to be hitting that. Um, if you're interested, it's voice.com, V-O-I-S-E.com. You can sign up for their newsletter there and uh, we wish them the best. We like what they're doing and we hope it works out for all concerned. 
that's it this week for ICO 41. Uh, we'll see you next week. And thanks so much for listening. Give us a shout, ICO41.com. Have a great week. Hi, this is Owen Scott with ICO41. We want to thank you again for listening to this podcast. We hope you find it useful. Again, we have a new podcast coming up fairly soon called Blockchain 41, where we're going to discuss from the absolute beginning the history of Bitcoin and blockchain and going on to Ethereum. And in that podcast, we'll be going quite a bit into detail at both a non-technical as well as a technical level as we progress and evolve through our education together in this space. Again, we thank you. We encourage you to visit ICO41.com. Sign up for our newsletter. We'll keep in touch. Have a great week.